Well, if you will, open me and your Bibles to the book of Colossians. Colossians uh, chapter 1. We have, uh, of course, just finished working through the the book of Psalms, and um, this morning we'll begin working our way through this New Testament letter to the Colossians. Um, I want to begin by reading our text this morning. It will just be um, verses 1 down to the middle part of verse 5. Colossians 1, verses 1 to the first part of verse 5. This is Paul writing under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit. He says, beginning in verse 1, Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus, by the will of God, and Timothy, our brother, to the saints and faithful brothers in Christ at Colossae. Grace to you, and peace from God our Father. We always thank God, the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, when we pray for you, since we heard of your faith in Christ Jesus and of the love that you have for all the saints because of the hope laid up for you in heaven. Let's go to the Lord in prayer. Father, you have secured for your people a great hope. You have secured a redemption for us, a resurrection, a glory, an inheritance, a kingdom, eternal life. And you have given us ultimately yourself, given to us Christ as our King. And as we have come to know Him, He has changed everything. When He gives us new life, we see the very world that we live in as something utterly different than we had seen before. And we see even your own people in a new light as those clothed likewise in the righteousness of Christ, sealed by Your Spirit and made our very own family and heirs together of the kingdom to come. When You bring us to Christ, You make everything different. You have done so for the people long ago in the church at Colossae, and You have done so for us as well. I pray, Lord, that the hope that You have secured for us will shape us to be a people just like the church of old, who not only trust in the Lord for their whole lives, but love one another as well as their fellow saints. I pray, Lord, that You would make us a people who walk faithfully in the will of God. 
And so do this for us as we consider these words this morning, we pray in Jesus' name, amen. Well, as I said uh, this morning, we are, of course, beginning a new study through the letter to the Colossians. Um, This is a fairly short letter, uh, but it is incredibly rich. Um, It provides for us a powerful explanation and exposition of the gospel. It shows us its heights and depths and widths and breadths. It is a letter that shows us the great glories of Christ, that the whole fullness of God was pleased to dwell in Him. It is a letter that helps us as well to understand things like the relationship between the Old Covenant and the New Covenant. How do we see ourselves now in light of the unfolding plan of redemption? And how do we look at the Old Covenant and receive wisdom from it while also recognizing that we're not under it, but are under something new? This letter helps us in these matters as well. And thus it helps us to understand where we are as Christians in God's plan of salvation. It is a letter that also provides a a helpful warning about false teaching, about distortions of the Gospel. And it is a letter that also teaches us very clearly how we are to live as Christians. Those who have come now to know and to understand the grace of God in Christ. When you believe in the Gospel, when you trust in Christ and are justified and you receive the glory of the forgiveness of sins, that's not where everything ends. It's where it begins. There are expectations that follow. There is a life that you are called to live that reflects the beauty of the Gospel in every sphere of your life. And this letter provides instruction in this area as well. Now, uh, you can see by the opening verses, uh, the greeting uh, that is found in verses 1 to 2, that this letter was written by the Apostle Paul. And he wrote this letter along with the letter to the Ephesians and the letter to Philemon while he was in one of his many imprisonments. This particular imprisonment was likely in the city of Rome around the year 60 A.D. But of course, we know from Paul's life and ministry that he had a long history of multiple imprisonments. He was constantly being detained because of his gospel ministry. The gospel certainly has a way of ruffling feathers, particularly when it is proclaimed in all of its fullness, unadulterated, untamed, 
when it is not peddled or softened or turned into a Hallmark greeting card, it confronts the world face to face with truth. It draws a line in the sand in much the same way as Joshua drew a line in the sand for the people of Israel. Choose this day whom you will serve. If Caesar is Lord, you serve Him. But if Christ is Lord, you serve Him. If the gods of the peoples are the true gods, you worship them. And you owe them worship. But if Christ is God, it is to Him that you worship. And it is to Him that you live your life. The Gospel does not allow any form of syncretism. It doesn't allow any mixture of any kind of truth and error. It is a message to the world that Christ is King. He is the Creator of heaven and earth. And He has accomplished a great work of salvation to reconcile sinners to Himself. And now He summons you to come and to believe and to give Him your life. This again is not just a religious story we tell ourselves to make us feel better about the way the world is. We even saw last week, this is a claim to historical fact, truth. Christ reigns and He summons you to repent and to believe. And when Paul preached this Gospel, it bore fruit in the conversion of many sinners, but it also provoked the rage and the enmity of men who hate God and who love their sin. And many times, because of this, Paul was imprisoned. And this, at the time of writing, was the current condition he was in. Towards the end of the letter, in chapter 4, verse 3, he's asking there the Colossians to pray for him and to pray for his co-laborers in the Gospel, like Timothy, who's also with him. And he says there, pray also for us that God may open to us a door for the Word to declare the mystery of Christ on account of which I'm in prison. But one of the things that's also important, I think, to note about this letter, just by way of introduction, is that the Colossian church, the, the Colossian believers, were Christians that he himself had never personally met. Colossae was a city that was roughly around 120 miles east of Ephesus in what is now the western part of the modern country of Turkey. And there's no record in the New Testament of Paul ever having traveled there. What he says in the letter is that he has heard of the Colossians from a man named Epaphras. 
who was a native of Colossae and probably the first one to preach the gospel to the people there. And Paul and Epaphras are now in prison together. And it's because of what Epaphras has told Paul about the Colossian church that then moves him to write a letter to them. As I already mentioned before, much of this letter is written out of thanksgiving for them. And it's intended to give instruction to this young church in the truths and in the glories of the gospel. But as we'll see when we get to chapter 2 especially, there is also a concerning influence of false teaching that is a local threat to this church. It seems to be a kind of strange mixture of Judaism along with some local folk religion. A kind of Jewish syncretism that is causing some confusion among some of these Christians. And so Paul intends as well to address and confront these issues. But as he begins his letter, he of course begins with thanksgiving. Epaphras has brought him an encouraging report about this Colossian church. And ever since he heard about them, he's been praying for them. Praying for them while being in prison. He says in verse 3, we always thank God, the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, when we pray for you. Yes, there may be some growing problems that exist within the church. Yes, there are things that need to be uh, watched for and to be warned about. They will need to grow. They will need to mature as a church. They will need further instruction even beyond this letter. But more than anything, Paul is thankful. He's thankful that God has made Himself known to them and made them His own. He's thankful to hear of the Gospel spreading and bearing fruit even through the ministry of other men like Epaphras. And even though he has no faces to put with his prayers, he can still pray to God with a thankful heart on their behalf. And I think even this is instructive for us. Sometimes you may wonder, right? you may wonder even in a prayer meeting, is it even worth praying for people you don't know, people you've, you've never seen their faces before. You can't put a face to the prayer. Is it therefore just meaningless? Right? I've, I've, I've never seen, perhaps you may think, I've never seen with my own eyes the church in Malawi, the people we pray for. Is it even worth offering up a prayer then to God on their behalf? And you can see here in Paul that this was very much so his own practice. To pray for a people who even with his own eyes he had never seen. While he was in prison with Epaphras and with Timothy and Luke and others, and they're talking together, of course, about the work of the Gospel 
there would of course come a time when they would say to one another, let's pray together. And they would remember always to pray for their brothers and their sisters at Colossae. Pray with thanksgiving. Pray for them to be filled with the knowledge of God's will. Pray for their strength and that they would bear fruit in every good work and much more. And so Paul tells them here that he's always praying for them and that he's thankful for them. And in these opening few verses, he gives two specific reasons why he is thankful. And these reasons for his thankfulness are full of riches on their own. So I want to concentrate our time on them especially. And the first reason he gives for thanksgiving is seen in verse 4. He is thankful for their faith in Christ Jesus. What makes him joyful? What causes his heart to sing to God and makes him thankful is that the most basic thing that makes a Christian a Christian is true of the Colossians. Namely, they believe in the Lord Jesus Christ. They have turned from their idolatry. They are very much so like the Thessalonians whom Paul said that when the Gospel came to them, they turned to God from idols to serve the living and true God. They have abandoned their paganism that they've known their whole lives. They've turned away from the customs and the beliefs that they were raised to believe. They've turned away from what dominates their culture and their anti-Christian world. And they've embraced Jesus as the Christ. The promised King of kings and the Son of God who redeems and who forgives us of our sins. They have faith in Christ and they have been converted by the grace of God unto life. And of course, this faith of theirs is not something that has remained private or hidden as well. It has gone public. It is visible. People can see it. Epaphras, with his own eyes, saw it, saw their faith as a living faith. That's why he was able to have a conversation with Paul and tell him these Colossians have believed in the Gospel. The Gospel is bearing fruit among them. I've seen it with my own eyes and now I'm reporting it to you. And now Paul says, I've heard about it. I've heard of your faith. You see, faith, friends, if it is true, faith cannot remain hidden ever. It must come out. It must be manifested. It must be revealed. It has to be communicated. It has to be lived out. It is like a seed planted 
in good soil. It's the very nature of the thing to grow, to put down deeper roots, to grow in height and put out branches and to be seen. A man who says that he has faith in Christ and would prefer never to speak of Him is a man who has no faith at all. And don't misunderstand me here. I am not dismissing genuine Christians who stumble over the fear of man in their witness to unbelievers. But especially in the company of believers, in the company of the saints of God and among a people who more than anything love Christ and have faith in Him, there is no way that faith, if it is genuine, can remain hidden. It has to come out. It has to be communicated and to go public. A new believer is compelled by his faith to speak of Christ and to bear witness to His grace through His testimony and through His baptism. An older believer is compelled by his faith to look back on his life and his many years walking with Christ and to bear witness to the Lord's goodness to him over these many years. One could think, for example, of the well-known account from church history of a man named Polycarp. who was a Christian who was martyred in the second century. He was arrested and he was brought to a stadium in the city of Smyrna where he would then subsequently be executed for refusing to renounce Christ. And while he was on trial, the magistrate commanded him, swear the oath to Caesar and I will release you. Revile Christ. And Polycarp replied, for 86 years I have been his servant and he has done me no wrong. How can I blaspheme my king who saved me? An older believer may not ever be put in a position where his life is being threatened, but his testimony ought to be the same. For this amount of years, I have walked with the Lord. I have known the Lord, and He has never done me any wrong. He is my King who has saved me. You ought to be able to do that. If you've been walking with the Lord for a while now, to say that the King has been good to me. A living faith must be made known. It is compelled to praise the King. And for these Colossians, their faith, of course, was known. And it came to Paul's ears and it caused him to rejoice greatly. But the other main reason that we find for Paul's thanksgiving here is, is closely related to this first one, but it, it can be distinguished. It is the love. The love that the Colossians have for the saints. 
right? And this is not saints in the Roman Catholic sense of just, you know, a, a few designated Christians throughout history. No, this, this refers to all believers. He's thankful that they love the body of Christ. They love the church. They love His people. Paul goes on in verse 4 to say that he gives thanks not only because of their faith in Christ, but also because of the love that you have for all the saints. Faith in Christ and a love for His body, a love for His people are inextricably linked. You can't You can't separate them. You can distinguish them. But you can't have one without the other. You cannot say, as many people are fond of saying, I hear this all the time, I love Jesus, I don't love the church. You can't say that. Jesus won't allow you to say that. Jesus would denounce you for saying that. He would not get you. You can't separate that. To not love the body is to not love Christ. And this is the case because He has united Himself to His bride. If you hate the bride, you hate Him. If you persecute the church, you persecute Christ. Remember what the resurrected Christ said to the Apostle Paul before he became an apostle. And he was a persecutor of the church. When the resurrected Christ confronts him on the Damascus road and referring to him by his Hebrew name, what does he say? Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? What what do you mean, me? I'm going after this this new sect of heretics over here. That's who I'm, I'm persecuting. No, no, no. Jesus identifies himself with his people. So if you go after them, you're going after him is what Paul was doing. You can't have Christ apart from His body. And one of the defining marks of genuine conversion that we see all throughout the New Testament is that when a person truly believes in Christ, they love His people. Warts and all. And we've got warts. And you love them still. This is also the same thing that Paul commended Philemon for. He said in Philemon 4 and 5 that he thanked God always, and then he gave his reason why. He said, because I hear of your love and of the faith that you have toward the Lord Jesus and for all the saints. In 1 John as well, it is this very thing that John explicitly states as one of the defining marks of a Christian, as the fruit of of conversion. Like, how, how, do you, how, how can you know that you've been converted? What are the things? What, what are some of the marks of, of conversion? And John describes them in, in, in his description. This is one of those things. Loving the body. 1 John 3, verse 14 says, we know that we have passed out of death into life. How? Because we love the brothers. Or 1 John chapter 4, verse 7 Beloved, let us love one another. He's speaking, of course, most immediately about the church, the people. They are the one another. For love is from God, and whoever loves has been 
born of God and knows God. How do you know that you know God? You love his people. That's what John is saying. This is Christian fruit. This is the tree of faith putting out its branches and the bloom of the flower. Faith in Christ produces love for the body of Christ. But of course, Paul doesn't end there either. He adds something to this very statement. He speaks next of the very thing that animates Christian love. There's a spring from which the fountain of love towards His people flows. And it's not duty. Though that is important. Neither is it a command. Do this. Though those things are also important. But that's not what he points to. The the spring of this love to the saints, he says, is a hope. It's a common hope. Paul says that the Colossians have a love for all the saints because of the hope laid up for you in heaven. This hope, in other words, is the basis of their love. It is the thing that gives it life and fuels it and makes it very much so otherworldly. Like it doesn't make sense. People who are not supposed to love each other in the world are by the gospel loving each other. What has happened? Jews aren't supposed to love Gentiles. Gentiles aren't supposed to love Jews. What has happened? We can think about things within our own history. right? At one time, especially, it was very common. right? A white man is not supposed to love a black man. A black man is not supposed to love a white man. And yet within the body of Christ, they're doing that. That doesn't make sense. This isn't normal for the world. What has happened? What makes it? What makes this love otherworldly? It's an otherworldly hope. This is what he's pointing to. Paul says of this hope that it is very much so otherworldly because it is not with us now. It is to be received in the future. Thus, it is a hope. It is kept and preserved somewhere else. It is, he says, laid up for you in heaven. There is a very real sense in which the Christian life is to be altogether heavenly-minded. The old saying that a person can be so heavenly-minded that they're of no earthly good is thoroughly unbiblical. That's not how Paul in the New Testament thinks about the Christian life lived on earth in the world. 
For the Christian, it is this very heavenly-mindedness that makes you a person of maximal earthly good. Later on in the letter, Paul makes this same kind of point again in Colossians chapter 3, verses 1 and 2. He says, if then you have been raised with Christ, seek the things that are above where Christ is. Seated at the right hand of God. Set your mind on things that are above, not on things that are on earth. You set your mind, as he will later explain, on the ethics of the kingdom. On heaven. And what heaven demands of you. Jesus likewise taught his disciples In Matthew 6, verses 19 to 20, do not lay up for yourselves treasures on earth where moth and rust destroy and where thieves break in and steal, but lay up for yourselves treasures in heaven. When the only thing that is on your mind is what is right in front of you, or even what could be in five years, or in ten years, or in a hundred years, If all your hopes and your dreams are wrapped up in this world which is passing away, it will actually have the opposite effect on you than what you probably think it would. What you might intuitively think is that if all of my focus and all of my desire is on doing something or building something or loving something on earth, whether that's a person or a job or a country or anything else, if all of my energy is poured into that thing, that's really how I'm going to be able to do a lot of good and bear good fruit. But in reality, this is actually how you destroy the things you think you love. If a mother tries to love her children apart from loving Christ more, apart from setting her mind on the things above, apart from the King, she'll actually turn her children into idols and probably spoil and ruin them. If a husband tries to love his wife apart from loving Christ, the same thing will happen. His wife will be an idol and he will become her slave and will be unable to carry out his biblical responsibility to lead well. There's something almost counterintuitive about the Christian life. And it's counterintuitive, friends, because of our fallenness. Per the actual created order of things, it's actually very intuitive. But you must love God more than everything else. You must love Christ more than everyone else. You must love the kingdom of heaven more than everything else. And through that primary love, 
everything else can be loved properly. And for its maximal good. To bear the fruit of godliness, which is of course something that is seen on earth, your heart and your mind and your devotion must be heavenly. And that's what Paul's getting at here. The Colossians love the saints. This is their good, evident fruit. Fruit on earth. Fruit on earth. And they love the saints laid up for them in heaven. Now, what is this hope? What are they looking forward to? That is the thing that animates their love for the people of God. Well, I think there's probably a variety of things that can be summed up here in this single word, love. But just to mention a few of them, for one thing, it is a future glory. A future glory. In Colossians chapter 1, verse 27, Paul refers there to the hope of glory. And he links this idea together with something that we already possess, namely, Christ in you. In other words, the Christian is united to Christ now. He dwells within us by the Spirit. But because of that union with Him now, in the future, we will be glorified with Him. And we will be as He is. We will reign with Him. And we will be raised with Him. Which is also another hope that Paul mentions in another epistle. Romans chapter 8. There he speaks of the resurrection that Christians are waiting for. Referring to it as the adoption and the redemption of our bodies. He says that we groan inwardly as we wait eagerly for adoption as sons, the redemption of our bodies. And then he adds in verse 24, for in this hope we were saved. You were saved. In the hope of the resurrection. This future resurrection is our heavenly hope. But, perhaps supreme over all of these, and what shapes and colors all of them is the hope of Christ Himself and seeing Him and being with Him face to face. In Titus chapter 2, verse 13, Paul there refers to what is our blessed hope. And he refers to it as the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ. And that word there, appearing, is always used within the context of His final coming. The appearing of Christ in all of His glory. This is our blessed hope. 
In 1 Timothy chapter 1, verse 1, he also refers to Jesus Christ there as our hope. And even in this very letter, in Colossians 3, he fixes our minds on the things that are above. Why? Because that's where Christ is. Who is our hope? The hope that is laid up for us in heaven is ultimately Christ. And when you see this, when you know this, when you've come to see Christ as supremely beautiful, as your King, as your blessed hope, when He is your treasure, everything changes. Nothing can be the same anymore. Your life on earth changes forever. What you love. Who you love. How you love them. Why you love them. It's all formed and molded and shaped by your supreme love for Christ. And it's unavoidable. There's no way for the Christian who knows Christ to segregate Him and keep Him locked away somewhere. When you have come to know Christ as these Colossian Christians did, it's actually not even possible to live your life apart from Him. You become like David in the Psalms. If I ascend to heaven, you are there. If I descend into the bed of Sheol, you are there. If I take the wings of the morning and dwell in the uttermost parts of the sea, even there, your hand shall lead me and your right hand shall hold me. He is constantly in you. Constantly with you. Wherever you go. And because of this, the whole world changes for you. Your whole life changes because now you have Christ. I remember a, a, a while back seeing a, um, a video of a young woman uh, who had been born deaf. And uh, it's one of those videos that's especially designed just to make you cry, right? You, you know, they, someone sends you a video and it's, if you don't cry, you don't have a heart, right? This young woman had, um, she was born deaf and uh, she had gotten these implants uh, put in her ears and uh, they made her hear. And uh, of course, she's, she's in the doctor's office and uh, they're testing these implants out. And as they're turning up the volume and uh, adjusting them um, for, for her hearing levels, of course, they're, they're speaking to her. And um, she hears right, for the very first time. And uh, then, of course, on the video, she breaks down crying. And you know, the people in the room, the parents, they're breaking down crying, and 
perhaps a thousand miles away, I'm breaking down crying, right? Everyone's crying. Because <laughs> she's hearing for the very first time. And for the longest time in, in her life, she had experienced the world in one way. Without hearing. Without the sense of, of hearing. She lived in the world. Right? She experienced the world, she saw things, she could smell things, but still her experience of the world was in some ways only partial because she couldn't hear. But when she was able to hear, it was as if a whole new world had opened up to her. And she now began to experience this very world in a very different way. And in many ways, friends, that's what happens in conversion when Christ comes to you. You were deaf. You could not hear the Word of God. You may have been around it before, but for the longest time, the Bible and the Gospel and the Word of Christ were just words. They had no meaning. They most certainly had no power. They came into your ear and they went right out the other one. And there was no change at all. And then, in God's grace, you truly heard and you believed. You were blind at one time and you couldn't see the eyes of faith that behold Christ for who He truly is were not in you. But then, the Lord, through the Gospel, through the Word, commanded you to open your eyes and when you opened them, you saw Christ. And you saw Him for who He truly is. Your King. Your Savior. Your Lord. Your Master. The One who has restored your vision. You saw Him as your hope. I think even this, this kind of seeing, friends, this seeing of conversion, the seeing now of the Christian in the Christian life, even this, as glorious as it is, is but a seeing with hope. Which means there's an even better sight to come. Our sight of Christ now is much like the sight of an infant. When an infant is in his mother's womb, it's just darkness. There's nothing to see. But when the baby is born into the world, the light comes on. And they come on very literally so because the doctor's lights are shining on them. You go from darkness to a world of light. 
And the eyes have to adjust. The vision has to grow stronger and stronger. In the beginning, everything is a blur. There's just light. There are shapes. The child hears the voice of his mother and father, but early on, the eyes are too weak and immature to recognize clearly faces. But eventually, the voices that were heard develop as the eyes grow stronger into clear faces and the child is able to recognize who his father and mother are. The words that are being heard eventually have an image that matches them. And in many ways, as Christians, it is like this for us. We see Christ and He is a bright, shining light. He is an altogether contrast from the darkness before. Before, we had no sight of light at all. It was just darkness. We hear His words. And His words speak to us. And they teach us. And they lead us. But our vision is still immature. Our vision is still impaired and it's still only partial. Now, as Paul says, we see in a glass darkly. But then, face to face. At His appearing, we will see His face with clear eyes and sharpened vision. And the very seeing of Him will transform us and make us as He is. And this, friends, is the hope laid up for you in heaven. The hope that is common to all God's people and thus the hope that unites us together in love. It is the certainty that by virtue of the work of the Spirit, He has made me His. And He is mine. He is the bridegroom. His body is the bride. And right now, the bride is being prepared for the wedding day. But on that wedding day, when the groom appears, both the groom and the bride will rejoice together as they see each other face to face in all of their mutual glory. And if you understand that, if you recognize that as your hope and you understand that that is the same hope for all God's people who have the same spirit as you, you cannot but love them. <laughs> if for no other reason, you're going to be in eternity with them forever. This is the body. 
And the same body that Christ shed his blood for. And if he loves the saints, we ought also to love the saints. This is our hope. This is what shapes us. This is what causes us to bear good fruit. So friends, this day, I urge you, exhort you, if you are a Christian, if you are not a Christian, the call is the same for all. To hope in Christ and to grab hold of that glorious inheritance and promise that has been extended to you through the Word. And you will bear fruit to the glory of God. Let's go to the Lord and close with prayer. Father, we were all dead and blind. We were all at one time incapable of seeing the beauty of Christ and in your grace and mercy and kindness and through your word, you changed us and you gave us eyes to see and ears to hear so that now even as we live in the same world, the world is not the same because Christ is in it and in us. And I pray, Lord, that as you have redeemed us, as you've united us to Christ and given us this great hope together, I pray that it would indeed bear the good fruit of a mutual love for all the saints. That the same people Christ loves would be the same people we love dearly and give our lives for. And that we would do this, Lord, that we would bear this good fruit, ultimately to bring you all of the glory as being our great Redeemer and Lord. We ask this all in Jesus' name. Amen.